Hello, I'm Cheryl Meyer, and this, and I'm otherwise known as Cheryl M. Healthviews. And what my goal is, is to inspire you to lead a healthier life. So when I proposed my podcast, I proposed that we present it in two different segments. The first one is It Feels Good to Feel Good, Future Proof Your Health, where I get to share everything I have learned to return my health back to relative wellness and to live a pain-free life in spite of the fact that I have autoimmune disease. But the second part of my podcast is this episode, and that's Tell Me Your Story The Health Views is In. My concept with this is it's all fine and well that you hear me tell my story, but I get a lot of it's all fine and well that it worked for you, but it's not going to work for me. And I wanted you to hear that there are lots of people out there that have made changes in their lifestyle that have supported their health and brought them back to relative wellness. We all have a couple things in common. We all owned our own health. Whatever the doctor was suggesting we did was going on on a parallel path to us making these lifestyle changes where we did things that cleaned up our toxic load. We all pay attention to our body. You'll hear jazz in the background because I want you to listen to the rhythm of your health and I want you to pay attention to what your body is telling you. My body had been trying to tell me that I was gonna topple over into toxic load for some time. I just wasn't listening. So if you clean up your lifestyle and if you listen to your body, you have a very good chance not of being deprived in any way, but returning to feeling darn good. And that's what these podcasts are really all about. So thank you for joining me. This is going to be a Tell Me Your Story, The Health Needs Is In episode, and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that we all inspire you to lead a healthier, happier life. Thank you. Hello, welcome to another edition of Tell Me Your Story, The Health Muse is In. And the guest this morning will surprise you because it's my husband, who is my true partner in crime. John actually does all of the editing and processing of all of my podcasts. He edited all my books. He reads extra health information so that when I can't get to it all, he can pull out the most juicy parts of it to keep me up to date and informed. Um, and I met him after I got autoimmune disease because I went looking for a partner who wanted to go on a get well journey with me. And John, um, in addition to other things that I had as my non-negotiables, answered in three minutes and lived 10 minutes away from me. And we got married seven years ago. The reason that I wanted to interview him is because he has a very interesting story that I want him to share with everyone. Number one, he's a statistician, but that's left brain. On the right brain, he had a um, minor in literature and he is even though i have a major in literature he is far better read than i am so he's a great partner because we share our love for books together and for research and for looking into science um but beyond that 
when I met him, he had just lost his wife of 43 years to cancer. And he is now working on his book. It's his turn and I will be editing it. And it's all about not being afraid of death. So we're gonna have a very interesting conversation here about a variety of subjects that I think that you will find interesting, including John's own health history. Because after taking and being the primary caretaker for his first wife, who was one of the loves of his life, he had gained quite a bit of weight and he's been working very hard to bring himself back to fitness. So welcome, John. I am so delighted to have you on the other screen on my computer so that you can share your story because you're the most important person in my life. And I want to share you with all the other people out there in podcast land. So welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice being in front of the camera instead of behind the camera. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it has been a real interesting journey for 10 years. You know, uh, uh, we realized uh, that uh, uh, June 26 was the first, uh, 10 years ago was the first date that uh, we had together, that Charles and I had had together. And, and we um, went to see a funky little movie that was kind of amusing, yeah. but really different. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a quirky little thing, but uh, <laughs> that's for another story. That's for another story. So why don't you share your background, your education, and your work experience first? Sure. Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, I was born just after the, I, I was one of the first baby boomers, uh, put it this way. I, I, I was born in 46, and both my parents were in the Marine Corps, and that's where they had met, got married. They, were, uh, they got married the uh, 1st of September in 1945, so the war was over by that point, and they both ended up getting discharged, and uh, then... You know, a little, just a little bit uh, less than a year later, I, I came out into the world. And, um, and then eventually had two brothers and two sisters that came along as well. I had, I had always been, uh, I had always been a, you know, learned at both my parents' knees that as a, uh, as a citizen, as a person, that you really needed to uh, serve, you know, not only your family but your country, you know, and your religion as well. And that, you know, really, uh, yeah, part of our goal as adults was to be of service. And uh, so I decided, at you know, the, the ripe age, old age of uh, thirteen, that I wanted to be a priest. And so. My mom was ecstatic. My dad, I'm not sure, but I think he was too. And um, so I ended up going to high school in what's called a minor seminary at that point in time, where they allowed high school students to go to high school and get a, get a feel for what it was like to be in religious life. And uh, so four years later, I'm getting ready to graduate, getting ready to go on to the next uh, portion of my training uh, for priesthood and everything else. And they told me, hey, John, you'd make a better scientist than a priest. Hostilities to baby. So, <laughs> so this was in 1964. 
and uh, I hadn't prepared to go to college right away. I had prepared to be off for a year and um, decided that since I didn't have any money, I might as well uh, get the my service out of the way. The draft wasn't in effect at that point, or at least not the big draft that occurred in, during Vietnam. So I signed up for four years in the Marine Corps. Ended up learning how to be an electrician, you know, doing all sorts of interior wiring and things like that and pole line work. Went into, uh, you know, went to Vietnam for two years. And while I was in Vietnam, I ended up having a, an opportunity to take a, a mathematics class from this PhD colonel, he had a PhD in mathematics. And I asked him, what does a mathematician do? Yeah, I figured if you're a mathematician, you just teach, you know? And he said, well, I run a missile battalion. <laughs> so you can do about anything you want with, uh, with a degree in mathematics, but a lot of people work in applied math. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I could be, I was very good at math and I felt that I could be at service to, now that I had been in service to God and service to my country, I could be a service to people at large by helping them with math. Went to college, uh, met my first wife, Margie, first day freshman year, <laughs> philosophy class. And like Cheryl and I were close, she knew people who, were in, uh, who had taught me in high school. And even though I was in Chicago and she was in California, we had people in common. And so we blamed it on Father George. That must be his fault that we got together. Um, I ended up uh, studying, got a master's in uh, mathematics and uh, a bachelor's in mathematical statistics, immediately found work. We moved to California and within two weeks I had a job and continued to work for pretty much close to 50 years in mathematics and computers and an area called uh, data mining, uh, which does data analysis on large amounts of data. And uh, so, you know, I, I was lucky to have that type of career and to be able to maintain that interest and use all of that stuff that I had learned in school and was able to fulfill my desire of being able to help people you know, with, you know, math, you know, solve mathematical problems. But I, I like one of the things I love. Other yeah, one of the things I love that you and just one thing about what you did, John's gift was asking the why, what were you really trying to find out? Because by figuring out the why, that's how he got, he was known for his gifts where they would come to him when they had a problem that no one was able to solve, but he approached it from a totally different point of view. And that was really what made him unbelievably successful at doing data. 
One of the things I love about him being a non-scientific person, even though my father was a scientific person, is he writes in more than nine computer languages. So he can solve any kind of computer language problem that's out there, which ended up being a huge advantage for me because I was working with databases and large retailers because I was a jewelry designer when I got sick. I was making um, jewelry for all the big box jewelers like Macy's and JC Penney and Amazon. And John was invaluable in the early days of our relationship, trying to help me through some technical difficulties with computers where we had to program things to make it easier for me to do. So that was the first thing I fell in love with him over. But okay, he's a data scientist. He's a scientist. He's more left brain than right brain brain, but he has all kinds of right brain capabilities as well. So obviously, we found lots of things in common. So you're going to write about death. I want you to explain to the people out there why you chose that subject out of all of the things that you could write about. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, actually, I've had quite a bit of experience over the years uh, with death, but it just never occurred to me that this was something that was necessarily unusual. I, I remember the first time that I noticed that somebody had died was a classmate in kindergarten who'd gotten killed by in an automobile accident. And I still remember it. I mean, this is, you know, uh, more than 70 years ago. And, I'm, and I still remember, I don't remember her name or anything, but I, I do remember that it, it impacted me. And um, when my grandmother died, which was just at the point in time when I was graduating from high school, uh, I wasn't able to go to her funeral and I was very upset about that. But I ended up realizing that my grandmother ended up being my garden angel while I was over in Vietnam. And so it didn't occur to me till many, many years later that that you know, was a role that she ended up playing. And you, though I did not actually have to do any fighting or anything else, we, you know, I did see, you know, people that had died from conflict. And, um, you know, and it sort of gives you a, gee, I'm, I, you know, I hope that's not me these days. I'd, one of these days, I'd rather, you know, live a nice long life than everything else. Can I interrupt you one minute? In, in, you told me a story of when you were in Vietnam of a horrific plane accident that you got yeah. involved in the cleanup of where a jet yeah. came and hit a large Vietnamese village right next to where you were stationed. Um, you don't have to go into depth about that because I know it was a very frightening and horrifying experience with you, right. but share just a little bit about how that impacted you. Yeah, it happened on a Christmas Eve of 1965 and um, uh, this uh, jet that was flying into Da Nang uh, was too low and hit a village just as everybody was sitting down for Christmas Eve dinner. And so my group and others were called out uh, to see if we could uh, recover bodies. And uh, just the I never had, to, I never found a body that I, uh, that needed to be recovered, but just the 
smell of the fire and of the fuel and everything else. It just, you know, I can still, I can still sense it even now as we're talking about it. Did that make you think a lot about death and what that meant to you? It set me back. Uh, I was off of celebrating Christmas for quite a long time. And it wasn't until I started reading some poetry, uh, I, I think it was uh, Yeats, uh, talking, about a, a, a talking about Christmas that I finally was able to recover from that. And that was probably about six to seven years after that happened. And um, yeah, when you're, you know, I mean, I, I was uh, 18 when that happened. And so, you know, you, you get some impressions, you know, for sure. Um, I mean, still to this day, Cheryl, it's 4th of July and Cheryl and I aren't planning on going to any fireworks shows because if we did, I would be crawling underneath the furniture. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, didn't realize that that was part of my, per uh, a part of my, uh, uh, social, uh, my uh, relic from the war, but it, it was. Um, but, you know, my, when my wife died, uh, uh, when Margie died four, uh, 10 years ago, uh, she was a very social person. Uh, she was a marriage and family therapist. She liked to talk with people, but she lost her voice. She lost her ability to speak uh, really well. I mean, she could speak a little bit, but just in short sentences and not like she would, uh, normally was. And I'd find that people would call her up or come in the room and they would act like they were deer caught in the headlights. You know, is death contagious? You know, is dying contagious? You know, and so I found that I gave voice to her. I ended up being her speaker, if you would, asking questions. How are you doing? How's the family? How's work? Things that I knew that she would ask if she was able to herself. And I could tell that she listened. She was responding to what they were saying. And in most cases, I was able to help them be at ease. And when we met, I was also very involved with a very dear friend who was dying from cancer. Right. And Margie obviously had already passed. That was behind you, but not by a whole long period of time. And our early conversations about death were something that bound us together because people would call me and say, when you talk to Gail, would you tell her that I love her? Would you share this with her? I go, why don't you call her yourself? Well, I don't know what to say to her. I said, you talk to her like you would talk to her if she didn't have cancer and she wasn't dying. There's nothing that has changed and she should hear it from you if at all possible. But there was a hesitancy to confront it in person. And I'd never understood that. And you and I had several conversations about that because you had had very similar experiences when Margie was starting to 
pass from this world to the next with people that dearly loved her, but were quite awkward about coming to visit her and have conversations with her. So you were very happy that you could at least function as Margie's voice towards the end and make people feel more at home if they did actually step out and come to visit. Well, and, and Gail herself was hesitant to talk with her husband, I remember. Right, right. And, and though I never talked with Gail directly, I had, you know, I said, you know, I said, from the perspective of the husband, you know, of somebody who's uh, sick and who's dying, is they don't understand what's going on unless they're told. And Margie and I would have great conversations about what was going on you know, as long as we could. And so I suggested that, you know, that that would be a gift that she could give her husband. Right. She, her comment when I talked to her about that was she didn't want to burden him any more than she felt she had already burdened him with her illness. And when she finally did have the conversation, she called me and said, that man you're dating is a very smart man. She said, because it opened up a whole world of conversation for them to rebuild the closeness that her disease, her cancer, had put between them. And then I wasn't the primary person she was talking to anymore, which was the way it was supposed to be. Right. Well, and it's very st stressful for a caregiver. Um, uh, after Margie died, I asked for information from the hospice uh, people that we had used on grief. And so they gave me a book on grief. Oh, okay, let's read the book. Well, the book was designed for other hospice workers. So it goes in and it tells you all the types of stuff that could happen to the surviving spouse you know, and what you had to look out for. And then it gave information and statistics. I'm a statistician, remember, about what, it, uh, you know, uh, what the survival rate is of spouses based on how much care they are involved with and other types of things. And I realized that I had 20% chance of uh, living for two years. And I remember you talking about how yeah. horrifying it was to read that. Yeah. Yeah. But you made I'm a going, decision whoa. as a result of that, that you were going to get out there and you were going to live your life. So Not share with everybody what you did as a result <laughs> of that. So uh, so I'm. Uh, it said you had to get your endorphins working to, to, to do this. You had it. You know, you had to be sociable. Uh, you had to talk with people. You couldn't just stick yourself into, you know, a hole someplace. And so <laughs> I got this information uh, in the mail about a world cruise on crystal cruises that was going to go from Los Angeles to Japan and China and Vietnam, very close to where I had been stationed, uh, Cambodia, uh, across the ocean to South Africa, where I'd always wanted to go. And so I signed up for it as a single for 89 day cruise. And <laughs> then, then I met Cheryl and, uh, and I said, hey, by the way, I'm going on, getting ready to go on this 89 day cruise in about a year and a half. Uh, would you like to come? And she said, nah, <laughs> I'm not a cruiser. No, nope. I get claustrophobic on boats, but 
what I told him is it was still too soon since he had lost his wife. I said, so you're going to go on that cruise because you need to know who you are if we stand a chance. And so off on his cruise, he went. It was sort of like, where's Waldo? He had some silly app on his telephone that he would send me a, a little ping that said, I'm here. Now, could I see where here was? No, I saw a dot on a map. And I'm looking at the most amazing Buddhist statue. <laughs> it was sort of like, where's Waldo? Because I couldn't see the Buddhist statue, but I sort of kept up with where he was as he went around the world through this silly app. I don't even remember what it was called, but it did sort of let me keep track of you right. <laughs> as you went on your cruise. Well, and, and, uh, and my wife is brilliant in a lot of ways. And, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, even before we were married, she said, John, you have to do this for yourself. And you really have to find your, you know, find out what it is. Well, when I got off the boat, I proposed to her and we got married a year later. So, so she, uh, you know, that was the right move on Cheryl's part. And he got adopted by a whole table of older women who took really good care of him, fended off the women who were out there trying to find their, their next money guy who was going to take care of them. They sort of just, they kept him company. They went off the boat with him and took some tours. Right. The ringleader was in her 90s, and she was redoing a cruise portion that she and her husband had done so she stayed in touch with him for several months after he returned to right. the state i'm sure she's not with us anymore but she was a real sweetheart of a gal that kept track of him and so it made it more enjoyable for her and her cohorts it made it much more enjoyable for him so he wasn't lonely and he wasn't alone but it did give him time alone to find himself right. which Absolutely. was wonderful and you know, I'm I'm going to get change it just a little up a little bit because I want to talk about health because I mean you know part of our uh, part of our message is you know uh, is how do you take care of yourself? Well, if I'm going to live, I need to be, uh, be healthy. So in that in that two year period, I ended up finding out I had diabetes type two. AFib, you know, which is where your heart's beating irregularly, and sleep apnea. I got three biggies right there. And he answered my ad because I commented I was looking for someone to go on a get well journey with me because the guy I was with when I got autoimmune disease didn't want to have anything to do with me cooking for him, changing how we ate, changing lifestyle habits, none of that. So he couldn't stay in my life. He went out the door and I was really looking for someone who wanted to help me get well by adopting similar habits and he needed to get well too. So together we went on a health journey. It was fun. Yeah, it was. I mean, during that cruise, I got on at 195 pounds. I got off at 195 pounds because during that year prior to doing this, I had lost I, I lost about 85 pounds, uh, uh, you know, trying to control carbohydrates and get on a, on a course, you know, where, uh, you know, I didn't get diabetes behind me right away, but it, it came pretty close. 
and then he, trying by to the stay way, no longer has diabetes. He's come all the way through to pre-diabetic and out the other end. He's not even on diabetes medication anymore. That's right. And so, you know, it's, uh, and uh, mostly it was uh, about watch to begin with, it was about watching my carbohydrates and, you know, and so and that's sure, the complex, um, it's the simple carbohydrates. It's the bread right. and the pastas and all that stuff. The other carbohydrates, the good ones, right. was what we increased in both of our diets. We started eating all the colors of the rainbow. We were eating a tremendous amount of organic vegetables and fruits. But talk to them about what you did on the cruise, because John yeah. actually wrote the chapter in my second book about right. how do you cruise and not gain weight? Because I since I'm not a cruiser, I wanted him to share with other people if they took a cruise, it didn't mean the whole lifestyle had to go out the window. No, it no, could no. be done. Though my downfall, of course, is bread. And they've got the most gorgeous bread on these cruises. So the first thing I said to the waiters that were at my table is, if you want a tip by the end of the cruise, don't offer me bread. <laughs> and they never did. They never came by with a bread plate to offer me anything. Uh, unless it was a, a new waiter that didn't know any better. But uh, it was, uh, I got a little frustrated because I couldn't get any way to manage my food intake. They'd have all of these rich sauces on food. You know, they go through a cycle of French and Italian and everything else on all these cruise segments. And so, you know, baked Alaska and everything else, because they're trying to make it fun for the people who are on it. And so I finally was able to get a hold of the uh, maitre d' and tell them, look, this is not going to work for me. If we can't figure this out, I'm going to have to get off. The, the, I'm going to have to leave the cruise. There, there's just no way that I can survive this. And so we worked out a deal. He'd bring me the menu for the next day for the evening men uh, menu because I could manage breakfast and everything else. And I would look through it, figure out what I could eat, if there was anything I could eat or what could be substituted. By this point, Cheryl taught me a lot of tricks. She was in the process of the uh, use this, not that, uh, which she eventually wrote about and, and gave uh, and has information on in, in our podcast. And so, you know, I learned how to substitute and I like to cook. So it was easy for me to figure out, well, gee, I see you have celery root. Let's substitute that for, uh, you know, uh, let's mash the celery root and substitute that for potatoes, you know, mashed potatoes. Oh, sure. Yeah, we could do that. We've got all that stuff. So it ended up working fine. And there were days where I couldn't eat anything. I was on the menu and couldn't find anything to substitute. So I'd go to the, usually the sushi restaurant. You know, and, and just eat, you know, just eat uh, raw, uh, raw fish uh, for dinner. That was a lot of fun, too. But we had also figured out before he got on the cruise that we didn't have to be 
held hostage by anybody. If we were going to go out right. to eat with people, we called the restaurant ahead of time. We talked to the chef. We negotiated with him what he could feed us that was within our healthy selections that we were trying to feed our bodies. It had more to do with socializing than what we put in our mouths. So we figured out how to go to other people's houses for dinner, how to go to restaurants, how to go anywhere, how to fly and take our own food so that we weren't held hostage by what they thought we wanted to eat. So that had already all been figured out. So now he's on the cruise, he's on his own, but he's got all the skills together to make this work for him. Right. I mean, I surprised people because I, just before I got on the cruise, I had had a, a condition uh, that where the doctors told me, do not exercise. Absolutely do not exercise. Now, usually I keep my weight down by walking the deck, you know, 20 times a day or something like that. And so the doctor said, no, you can't do any of that because you, you know, you can uh, exacerbate the problem that you had. And so I didn't, I didn't exercise. And there were people on that ship that were on the same world cruise with me who just could not believe that I did not gain weight. They just couldn't believe it. Because they said, well, I see you eating real food. You know, it's not like you're starving yourself or anything. You're eating real food and you're, I know you're not exercising. How are you doing it? <laughs> we were also to the point by the time you went on the cruise where we were not feeling deprived in any way because oh, no. we had broken the addiction exactly. to the standard American diet and exactly. real food really tasted good to us. And when you get there and you feel good, you are not so willing to give it up. So the fact that yeah. he was eating different from everybody else who was on that cruise was actually making him happy because he was feeding what his body wanted. And I was amazed when I learned how to re-eat real food, how smart my body was, because when I let it vote, it always voted for eating the real thing and not all the crap carbonated artificial process stuff. And John had reached that point with me as well, because that had been incorporated to the diet we were cooking and eating together. So, you know, people were probably looking at him going, oh my God, he's so deprived. He's not eating that really super rich, icky thing. And he was happy he wasn't eating that really super rich, icky thing, because it didn't taste good to him anymore. And that's how the body responds when you break away from all that stuff. And, and you don't need chocolate croissants for breakfast every day. No. Yeah, maybe once, maybe once every once in a while, but you know, not, you know, certainly. So, I mean, it was, it was good. And I ate uh, meals with people and everything else. And just, I just watched it. I just watched it. So it is possible. And on a big ship like that, I mean, you know, this is a floating restaurant and everything else. I could tell that they were bringing on fresh produce you know, at each of the ports and everything else. So it, it was, uh, you know, it was doable. It was doable. And I'm glad I was able to be assertive enough to make Which sure Which is really that part of the sort of Yeah. You can't be yeah, embarrassed you know, to ask. Yeah. I mean, if they would have said, there's no way we could help you, I'd have gotten off in Hawaii. I'd have made it 10 days in the cruise and I'd have been off. But uh you know, and I even wrote my travel agent said, this is what's going to happen unless we can figure something out. And uh, yeah, I was so, just explaining um, to a client that if your why is big enough, you figure it out. 
And I was explaining to her that I used to be a smoker and I had stopped for many years and had just started smoking again when I got autoimmune disease. And I looked at that cigarette and went, what the heck am I doing? Obviously I wanna smoke it, but I'm gonna tell myself I'm a smoker who chooses not to smoke. And I never smoked again a day after that. And it's been now another 12 years since I did that. If you set your mind to something and it's not a try situation, you're just going to do it and you make it work because your why is big enough to make it work. I hurt so bad. I was not. I was looking for ways to get rid of the pain. We didn't even know back then that I had autoimmune disease. That happened a little bit later. I had an inkling that I had autoimmune disease, but I was cleaning up toxins and cleaning up my food because I wanted to get rid of my pain. And then three years into it, I found a functional doctor who found all the markers for autoimmune disease, and she took me the rest of the way home. But my why was enormous because I did not want a life of laying in bed with pain and pills. And so if you set your mind to it, that it's not a try situation, you're either going to do it or you're not, then it's amazing what you can figure out to get it done. Yeah. And, you know, it's great to have a partner like Cheryl that can support you. You know, it's diff- it would have been very difficult to do this without, you know, with our part- without our partnership. For both and, of us. Yeah, for both of us. And, um, but it, you know, I, I, I ended up, I'm not a guy who likes to exercise. So one of the things that Cheryl introduced me to into was yoga. And so we started, uh, we started doing, uh, going to Saturday morning yoga and then going and eating breakfast you know, so, with a friend, and uh, which was always which was always uh, fun, and um, and then our after we were doing that for a while, our the yoga teacher we really liked all of a sudden was gone. She disappeared. I mean, we ran into her later on, but some something happened where she wasn't teaching uh, yoga anymore. So we got ended up getting this uh, a lady who is a, a phys ed teacher, I think, in her in her other job. She who, wanted to uh, tie us into a knot. <laughs> she wanted to tie us into a knot. It felt like boot camp again, and we both nah, let's not do that. And then uh, this was about, uh, I guess, about six years ago. We ended up getting involved with uh with a group uh called body and brain uh doing a, a korean style yoga which is much not like the downward dog and tree and everything else but more of an isometric type of thing getting your body into positions where you're working your muscles against each other as opposed to you know trying to do poses they did you have know, some poses like sleeping, um, crouching tiger. There was some, yeah. but it wasn't the right. Indian version of yoga. It was Correct. the Korean version. Correct. Yeah, the, the, there's uh, so many hundred of, of poses that are in the lexicon that, you know, some of them do match up uh, quite a bit. And uh, Cobra is one that, I, that we do, uh, uh, that I like a lot. <laughs> that was in both uh, both types of 
uh, and this was a Tao form of yoga. Of yoga. Yes, yeah, so it so ended up working we, we with went, energy. Yeah, we ended up realizing that this was, you know, energy type of stuff. And during the course of all of this, I started getting more and more involved with the philosophy of Tao and everything else. And I realized couple of years ago that I hadn't quite let go of Margie. Probably, you know, it was probably about six years ago or, or four years ago or so, maybe just a little a bit more, that I hadn't really let go, I hadn't really released her. You know, After now, 43 there, years there, of there, happy there, marriage. There, yeah. There, there was, yeah, there was a point, though, when Margie was an angel on Cheryl's shoulder that helped me uh, not die at a particular point. That's a story for another time. But um, And there we, was an evening when we went to Paris where both right. of us dreamt about Margie. I never had met uh, Margie, but John dreamt about Margie, and I dreamt about Margie. Margie came and visited me to thank me for being with him. And when we got up in the morning, we couldn't wait to share that Margie had come to us both in our dreams. So she was yeah. there. I would have liked her had I ever gotten to know her. Oh, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but I, so I realized that I had been, I had this whole idea of writing this book about not being afraid of death, but I hadn't really done anything about it. And then I kept running into people that needed the information. And I started, I'm, I'm getting ready. Okay, I, I, I'm going to sit down and write this. And every time I'd sit down and write it, I'd get this message. You're not ready yet. You've got more to learn. And so I started paying attention and learning, reading more about how the Tao people believe in death, how other Buddhist people believe in death, and looking at Christianity again and seeing you know, what's going on in there and several of the other religions too. And I realized, wow, there's this commonality all the way through. Things that can be called different names. You know, you know one group may believe one thing, one group believes in another thing, but there's all almost all these common, yeah everything seems to cross over and so you know i believe that uh now i'm ready uh, to do it as a matter of fact i i have started writing uh, and just to interject we are currently in sedona we spend the summers right. and the holidays here and what led us to sedona is that this tau group has a huge unbelievable beautiful resort called Mago that is just outside of Sedona that we came and took several classes from. And John has continued that work. Um, I have not, but John has continued that work, which has been phenomenal for him. It's also been really good for his AFib and his heart and the exercises that he does as a result of working with different masters out there. So that's how we ended up being here. And this is such a beautiful spiritual location that that all helped him with his spiritual growth to get him ready to write this book as well. Right. And, and it's, you know, when I was young, I was pretty passive aggressive. And uh, I lost most of that before I met Cheryl. She probably wouldn't have married me if I, if, if I would have been uh, you know, that way. Um, 
but you know, and one of the things that I did learn from this practice was how to essentially be right now. You don't have to be in the past. You don't have to be in the future. Where you need to be is right where you are right now. And everything else will solve itself. Can't change the past. The future is going to come. Yeah. And so I think that was something that really helped me in terms of, you know, my own development. Once I uh, can understand what that meant, but not just understand it, but feel it. Uh, really ended up uh, being, uh, you know, beneficial to me. I think beneficial to our relationship as well. <laughs> there are times where I really surprised myself. I, I was working for uh, doing something for Cheryl, a technical problem that I really messed it up. I really blew it. And, <laughs> and which is I, almost never, by the way. Yeah. And then I woke up the next morning and and so I said, hey, well, Cheryl, yeah, I'm, I'm really at the point of getting ready to beat my head against the wall because I really followed this up. And we just talked for a few minutes. And I said, oh, wait a second. I think I might know how to take care of this. I went in, took care of it. And I never beat my head against the wall. I had let myself relax. I had let myself sleep. I talked it over you know, to find out, you know, if uh you know where and trust me i wasn't the one who solved it <laughs> but, no, but the answer but, came but, yeah, but yeah but talking about it and and everything else cheryl had a couple of ideas that actually were right on the money because she had been down a similar rabbit hole at one particular point and i'm going to myself the next day i said i did that without getting upset You know, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? Is, you know, I, I could have easily seen myself going, you know, going out slamming doors or, you know, whatever, you know, and, and everything else, things that had happened in the past. But uh, so this whole experience, this whole shared experience that we've had, this experience of giving Cheryl's message and really our combined message to all of you, to our viewers, has been really a lot of fun. And um, we are, uh, uh, you know, we're having a blast at it. If we're gonna be, if I'm gonna be with somebody during COVID and keeping myself immensely busy, I'm sure glad it was with Cheryl. Yeah, because, if I had know, to be isolated with anybody, thank God it was you. One of the lovely things about John, which I'm just going to say to everybody, is he really wants me to be happy. So he does everything he can do to just make sure that I'm happy. In all the significant relationships I have had, other than my parents, who truly did love me unconditionally, I never had that. Um, I was always trying to be the one who made them happy. I didn't have somebody who just really wanted me to be happy. And I'm not saying that I don't want John to be happy because I do, but his focus is on trying to make me happy. And that is such a lovely gift that I'm really delighted that I got the opportunity to experience in a relationship in my life because we're both in our 70s. So 
we found each other towards in the last third of our lives. And we're going to go through the rest of this ride together. Um, and it's nice that we care about each other in a different way than I have experienced in a significant relationship before. So you know, one Sharon, of the things that you have uh, on, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, before we uh, wrap up uh, too much, I, I wanted to share with uh, our audience uh, the stuff I found about longevity uh, recently. Um, so I, I'm going to be 76 in, in a month. And uh, I was trying to figure out, well, so what's my life expectancies if I'm 76? So I went online and found this website that gives you information. You put in, you know, what's your age? Uh, where, uh, where do you live? What's your gender? Pretty much standard type of stuff. Not many, not a much more, a few, not any major questions uh, more than that. And it came back and said, oh, well, you're, you got 10 more lives, years to live, statistically speaking. So I said, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then I said, but it didn't ask me any questions about lifestyle or anything else. So I started looking around, looking around and looking for a, a site that would allow for the same calculation, but would allow for answers to questions about eating, exercise, uh, general health, you know, and everything else. And so I put the stuff into that one. Hey, guess what? I gained five more years. So, <laughs> Yeah, and we do live a very clean life. We both feel I good. We eat extraordinarily well. We eat as close to the farm as we can find. Easier in California than here in Arizona because they don't grow all the food. California is actually the food basket of the United States. All of the food that goes all across the United States comes from the central California area. So we can get year round incredible fruits and vegetables. That the variety is not as much here in Arizona, but what we can get here, we get from the farmer, which is important. So all the phytonutrients that are keeping us healthy, we're getting directly from the earth within days of it being picked. And that's one of the things that my classes are about because I want everybody to do that. I want everybody to take advantage of that. So we live very good and um, it should help us live a long time. And then John is always doing it. Tell him how many belly exercise things you do every day. Uh, well, uh, one of uh, one of the physical problems that I had uh, uh, ended up I, I ended up uh, ended up that I had to have some radiation in my lower abdomen, and I ended up losing three inches of my height. So I used to be six foot two. I'm now five foot eleven, and I was having trouble getting around. I was having trouble walking. Uh, for quite a while, I sort of, eh, well, this is something I guess I'm going to have with me always. You know, before I met Cheryl, I was one of those people. Well, I don't necessarily want to take a pill for it, but I guess, I, yeah, I guess I can't do anything about it. it must be age, you know, got to be age. Can't Which, by the way, for our generation is a typical response. Right. They're either looking so for I, the I, magic I, pill or they just sort of accept that this is part of aging. Right. So uh, in one of these Tao classes, uh, they said, you've got to come up with something that you do all the time. 
You, know, you have to come up with an exercise that you do all the time. So I said, well, I'm going to do 1500 intestinal exercises. Intestinal exercises is, you know, squeezing your belly in, you know, sort of tucking your uh, anus in and everything else. I remember from uh, little Ma's classes that Margie took, this is called Kegels. <laughs> so so uh, I had decided to do 1500 of those a day. And for the last, it's been almost now three, three and a half years, I've been doing that. And I get asked, well, why do you do that? I said, because now I can walk better. You know, I, I, I can actually get around. But it's tightened I, up all those muscles. It's tightened up all the muscles. I, I'm actually sitting on a ball right now, uh, which also fires the core up as well. So as you see me bouncing around, it's because I'm actually sitting on an exercise ball. And uh, so I, I really tried to concentrate on doing the stuff I needed to uh, really get my uh, core going. It's also corresponds to the lower chakras. And uh, I feel better at seven, almost 76 than I did in my 50s. I was a pretty sick puppy yeah, for we a both while do. Yeah, I'm 73. I feel much better than I did in my 50s. And I have no pain left from autoimmune disease, which is huge. So um, what's the message that you want to have as your core message when you write your book about death? Yeah, it's, it's going to happen to us all. It doesn't make really much difference what philosophy or lack of philosophy you have about what's going to happen after death or whatever it's it's going to happen whatever it is so what you want to be able to do is to essentially almost i, I want to say go out with a smile you want to be able, you want to be able to die in such a way that you are i've done the best that i can i'm you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I feel okay. I can go ahead and do it. And I've seen people die, you know, personally that didn't have that. And I've seen other people die that really had it. And yeah, that really had it, really had it in spades. And the beauty of that death, not only for them, but also for everybody around them is just uh, indescribable, ineffable, it would be the word I'd use. And so that's- Be afraid that's to really talk to your loved ones about what you're going through when you're going through the process. That was what right. I learned with Gail and my yeah. mother. My mother and I left nothing unsaid when she passed. Unfortunately, yeah. my father died suddenly. So I left a whole lot unsaid with him. And that haunted me for a very long time. But my mother, it changed my whole relationship with her. And we talked about it. And we had honest conversations. And we certainly let each other know how much we loved each other. And so really, nothing was left unsaid. And that's the way I want to go when it's my turn. I want to be able to, to tell the people I love how much they've meant to me and leave them with that and not have them be afraid to talk to me about whatever their fears are about my passing. Because we're and, all going down of, that chute. 
And one of the things that you can do to help you get there, because sudden deaths do happen, is to every day be grateful, express your gratitude you know, to your loved ones. And if it happens suddenly, unexpectedly, again, you've done the best you could. Yeah, John and I are both big believers in gratitude. And interestingly enough, two days ago, I came across a study that shows that gratitude is incredibly healthy for your heart and your longevity. Because if you start your day out on a positive note every day, that sets your whole body into a healthy, happy position that allows you to go through your day with more meaning than if you weren't grateful. So we're both big believers in practicing it. And I've come to the conclusion that for gratitude to mean anything, it's got to be a verb. It's not just a word. You have to not only practice it, but verbalize it and tell people what you're grateful for. So be grateful. Whatever you do every morning, find things that you are particularly grateful for in your life because they will enhance your life and if you make it a verb and you share it with your loved ones it makes their life better too who doesn't want to hear that you're grateful for them and how wonderful you are feeling that they're in your life say it don't hold it in get it out there and say it to the store clerk right stay, uh, say it to the people that you interact with you know, uh, one of the one of our masters uh, was saying that people were complaining because he seemed to go be walking around, you know, sort of not quite scowling, but really not looking good. And they knew that he was a nice guy, so they told him, "You got to smile more." This is Master Luke. So Master Luke, practicing smiling, and one day. He was walking down the street in front of some, uh, you know, windows, didn't really notice anybody in, in, behind the windows, but he looked at himself and, and he, you know, just started smiling. And all of a sudden, people behind the thing were waving at him and everything else. He just couldn't believe it. It was so, he was, got really excited about that. Yeah, smiling is contagious. Happiness is contagious. It really is. And we need it right now. Yeah, we do. With everything going on, we do indeed. Yeah. So what is the message you want people to take away from this interview? Uh, two, uh, two major things. Uh, you can't do anything about death that's going to happen. You know, it's not, you can't pr necessarily predict it. But your attitude of your about yourself how you feel about yourself and how you feel about others is really the only thing that you have any control over. And so, you know, try to do, uh, try to be that way. And you're going to be, you know, death is not going to be a, 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 a bad case for you in my prediction. No, and it's it's inevitable. <laughs> so have a good time while we're going this way and we're on this road because it's coming no matter what. So leave behind a legacy of a mission or whatever it is you are touching other people's lives with along the way. Yep. 
So I just want to share with everybody, one of the reasons I wanted to interview my husband today is because my podcast is coming to an end. We're about to shift it over to YouTube. I may still do some new episodes, but if I do, they will go there and not here. And what we're about to do, which is perfect for the two of us, we've done a questionnaire because I want to help people determine what their toxic load is, because that was the first thing I needed to determine when I got sick. And I had a conventional doctor that had no clue what was wrong with me. So I figured out I had a toxic load. And I ended up cleaning dozens of toxins out of my life. And by doing that, I began to get my health back even before I met my functional doctor who took me the rest of the way there. And then what we're going to do with the questionnaire, once you know what areas you need work on, those areas become your missing puzzle pieces, I'm going to do a series of little, tiny, um, maybe three to five minute little uh, videos where you can go into a membership area and listen to little health bites, little sound bites of health, where you can find your own puzzle pieces from all the puzzle pieces that I have kept in what I call my nurture file, so that you can find the answers that you need to help yourself reach the points that John and I are at with our health, because we feel so good, we want to share it with everybody else. So John is going to be working with me on producing all of these, and I'm making my questionnaire work so that you get some immediate answers. So it's really a dual project, but that's where we're going, and I'm hoping to roll all that out by 2023 in January. So be on the lookout for it. And if you want to be on my mailing list so that you know when I get that out. And the reason I chose this is because when I was speaking before COVID, everyone kept saying, how did you know that you had toxic load? Well, the, sim the symptoms were telling me loud and clear what was wrong. So get on my mailing list so that you know this is all happening or follow me on Cheryl Meyer on Facebook and I'm Cheryl Meyer 3 on Facebook or follow me on Cheryl and Health Muse, M Health Muse on YouTube because I will also be announcing it through all of those areas. So I hope you will continue to follow the two of us as we continue to share our own health journey with everybody else because trust me, when you regain your health, it really does feel good to feel good, which is what we've called this podcast, what I called my books. It's a whole new game when you feel I was walking around feeling lousy for years before I knew that was what was wrong with me. So join us on this journey to feel great. You control a lot of what you can do to bring your body back to health. We did it together. Having community certainly helps. That's been proven even by the Blue Zones. But get on your journey to own your own health. And it isn't in conflict with anything your doctor wants to do with you, except that the further down this road you go, you can start to work with him to wean off some of those medications and, the, and his bag of tools so that you can start to live a more holistic life because this stuff also works. But he's your doctor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I just have made significant lifestyle changes as has John. And so we want to encourage you to make lifestyle habits that will also encourage health for your body. And that's why I call myself a muse. I want to inspire you to a healthier life. So you have any final words, John, since I took over there? 
I love you. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you all for joining us together. I will have at least one more podcast before we go. I want to still talk more about what the food industry has done to the standard American diet, which will probably be the last podcast in this series when we start to switch over into how to eat from the rainbow and all the other lifestyle changes you can make that will feed your body health. So thanks for joining us today. It's lovely to have had you out there listening to me while I talk about health for the last two years. Thank you.